You know, good stories have a way of grabbing my attention, uh, stirring my memories and stirring my emotions and fueling our imaginations and also calling for a response, especially when they're true stories. And I've found out that even a short story can pack a big punch. And that's true of Psalm 114. It packs a big punch. And before we read through these eight verses together, I want to mention three things about this psalm that I think will help us as we look through them together. Many believe, many serious students of the Bible believe that this psalm was written after the Babylonian captivity. You know, Israel had been taken into captivity because of their idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. And not only were people, people taken out of their native land and moved to a foreign land among a people of a strange language, their temple had been destroyed. And this psalm was written at a time when the children of Israel needed encouragement. They needed encouragement about God's plan for them. And this psalm would be a word of encouragement to them if they would stop, listen, and remember. And the writer of this short story, he, he tells it in such a way, as you'll see when we read down through it, he tells his story in such a way as to encourage his readers to stop and to remember who God is and what He has done. Second thing about this psalm is that it is the second psalm in a group of six psalms that are referred to as the Egyptian Hallel. Uh, and that's Psalm 113 through 118. And Hallel simply means praise. That's what the word means. And we get our word hallelujah. That's one reason why I got excited about us singing hallelujah a while ago. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. That's what the word means. The Egyptian Hallel. So uh, the Psalms were, became a part of... Uh, the Psalms are referred to as the Egyptian Hallel because they became connected with Passover. And then this group of Psalms became uh, a part of the regular observance of the feast in the nation of Israel. And, and these Psalms were there to remind the people of God that they had many reasons to praise the Lord because of who He is and because of what He had done. Thirdly, Jesus and His disciples probably sang from these psalms on a particular occasion. Now, He may have sung and probably did from many of them, but we believe that... Remember Jesus went to the upper room to observe Passover, his last Passover on earth before Calvary with the disciples. Then he instituted the Lord's Supper, said, eat this in remembrance of me, drink this in remembrance of me. And then it says, and Ross reminds us of this after every communion, it says they sang a hymn and they went out. That's in the gospel. And probably they sang either a portion of, or all of this Egyptian Hallel. So when you read through these six psalms sometime, think about Jesus singing those words after instituting the Lord's Supper and after observing Passover with the disciples. 
Well, this psalm, like I said, is relatively short, eight verses long, and can be divided into uh, four sections of two verses each. And what I've done, I wanted to put these things on the screen primarily because I wanted us to read these verses together. And I wanted us to do it out of the same version. So we're going to read verses 1 and 2 first, and uh, then we'll we'll talk a little bit about these verses. But would you join me in reading these, these two verses together now? When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language... Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Now in this true short story, look at the main characters to whom we are introduced in these two verses. In verse 1, Israel is mentioned near the beginning of the verse. Near the end of verse 2, see the word Israel. Israel is the main character, one of the main characters. In verse 1, Israel is also referred to as the house of Jacob. This refers to the extended family of the Israelite patriarch Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. Down in verse 2, Israel is referred to also as Judah. Now Judah was the fourth son of Jacob through Leah, the great-grandson of Abraham, and he was the ancestor of the tribe known as Judah. And uh, Judah became the namesake ancestor of a tribe of descendants that included King David and King Jesus from the tribe of Judah. Judah is probably put here in parallel to Israel because of the prominence that was given to that tribe. So we see a focus on a main character, Israel. Well, there in verse 1, we see also a mention of Egypt. Egypt is one of the main characters in this true story. And also referred to as a people of strange language, which would probably mean a lot to folks after the Babylonian captivity who spent some years among a people of strange language. The writer of the psalm says, it happened before. Then there's a third character that's introduced in verse 2. And, and one of the neat things to me in reading and thinking about and studying this psalm is that no name here is given for this character. He is simply referred to with the personal pronoun, his. And as it turns out, this is the main character of the whole poem. The writer of the psalm knows who it is, and you do too, probably, if you're looking ahead and if you're thinking and remembering the story. But for special effect, the writer at this point does not give the name. And in these two stories, we've got a reference to the Exodus story, how the children of Israel who had been in bondage in Egypt for centuries miraculously went out as a unified people And we have the reason why they went out at the end of verse 2. They went out to become His sanctuary, to become His dominion. Now think about it. When the children of Israel would hear or read or sing this poem, this true short story, they would be hearing a portion of their own history. And this story would rekindle hundreds, if not thousands, of images 
in their minds, about their uh, existence, about their history, about their heritage, about their destiny. And the rehearsal of this story would give them encouragement and also instruction as to how to live in the situation they're in now. You remember Jacob and his family went down to Egypt in a time of famine. And you remember how God used Joseph, Jacob's son, next to the youngest son, to get Jacob and his family down to Egypt where they not only survived, but they had their own spot in the land of Egypt and how they began rapidly multiplying. Then a Pharaoh came who didn't know Joseph and started mistreating the children of Israel and they cried out to the Lord and God miraculously delivered them. Now that's just a few of the images and events that happened. Your mind is probably twirling with things like plagues and Joseph's dreams and, and other things, Passover. And all these images would be going through the minds of the children of Israel. But the writer of this short story summarizes the event simply this way. When Israel went out of Egypt, Judah became his sanctuary and his dominion. In verses 3 and 4, we're introduced to some more really, to me, very interesting characters in this short story. Uh, I want you to read these two verses with me. Let's read them together now. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The hills like lambs. Sound like a poem, kind of, doesn't it? Even in English. Here we're introduced to some other characters. The sea, Jordan, the mountains, and the hills. And these characters are not personal beings. They are inanimate matter, but they are parts of God's creation. And they are actively involved in God's rescue operation for the children of Israel. We read that the sea looked and it fled. We read that the Jordan turned back. We read that the mountains skipped like rams, and and the hills skipped like lambs. Now, when you read about a sea looking and fleeing, especially after reading about Israel coming out of Egypt, what do you think about? I think I can guess maybe what you think about. Maybe the Red Sea. And you remember how the children of Israel came to the Red Sea, and God parted the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry ground, The Egyptians tried to pursue. The sea came back on the Egyptians and the Egyptians were drowned. Now when we read about the Jordan turning back in verse 3, we're transported in time 40 years into the future when the children of Israel crossed the dry riverbed of the Jordan when God turned the waters back and they went on dry ground over into the promised land. It's interesting to me why the writer put these two things together in one verse when they're separated by 40 years. You think about it, the, the, the Red Sea parting is like the curtain opening for the children of Israel to go on their journey to the promised land. And then the opening and closing of the Jordan River is like the curtain closing 
As they enter the promised land, now they're where God wants them to be. And that phase of their journey is over. But when we read about the characters in verse 4, it's probably pointing to an event that's between the Red Sea and the Jordan. Look at the description of the mountains and the hills. The mountains skipped like rams and the hills like lambs. Now when you hear about mountains acting strangely in the context of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, getting ready to go to the promised land, I bet you're, you may be thinking about a mountain called Mount Sinai. And that's probably what the writer is talking about here. He's referring to those events that took place at Mount Sinai. Listen to this description of Mount Sinai in, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain Listen to this. The whole mountain trembled greatly. The mountain was trembling, skipping like a ram. God came down to meet with Moses. And here he gave to Israel the law. And creation responded to that awesome event. The children of Israel came out of Egypt as a unified group. They were taken to Mount Sinai. They were given the law. After they were given the law at Mount Sinai, they had two elements out of three that make up a nation. They came out of Egypt a unified people. You need a people to make a nation. At Mount Sinai, they were given a constitution. You need a constitution to be a nation. When they crossed the Jordan, they now had a land. It was a people with a constitution under God's rule, with the land that God had given them. And God had told Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, years ago, that he was going to make him, Abraham, into a great nation. And that through him, all the families of the earth were going to be blessed. Well, here the ball's rolling. They're made into a nation. And God's creation was responding to what God was doing in delivering Israel and making them His sanctuary, His dominion. Now something to me really interesting happens in verses 5 and 6. The poet interrogates the sea, the Jordan, the mountains, and the hills, and he asks the same question to all of them. And I want us to read this question that's given to all four of them together in verses 5 and 6. Let's read them together. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills? In a dramatic way, the poet draws attention to the remarkable response of nature to what's going on. And for dramatic effect, he asks a question to to find out what's causing this reaction. And he simply says, what ails you? You ever had anybody to ask you that? They probably don't say, what ails you? They might say, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, O.C.s? Or maybe we should say, what's right with you? What ails you that you flee? What ails you, Jordan, that you turn back? What ails you, mountains, that you skip? 
and hills that you skip. And then we would expect to get the answer in verses 7 and 8. But I want us to read what he says in these last two verses. And would you join me in reading verses 7 and 8 together? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, flint into a spring. Now, when I would go on reading these verses, I would expect to get an answer to the question, but instead of getting an answer, you get a command. And it's the only command in all this psalm. In verse 7, the psalmist tells all the earth to tremble at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. It was in His presence that caused the sea to skip, uh, to flee. It was His presence that caused the Jordan to turn back. It was His presence that caused the mountains and the hills to skip. And it's as though the poet is telling us, the Lord is the one before whom all nature trembles. The Lord is the one to whom all nature obeys. And yet the Lord is the one who chose to make little Israel His sanctuary and His dominion. And it was this Lord who moved creation power by His power on their behalf. Now in verse 8, the last verse, the poet reminds his readers of something else about the Lord, in whose presence the earth, earth must tremble. He turns the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a spring of water. Now these two events took place during the wilderness traveling of the children of Israel. It happened twice. One of them is recorded in Exodus 17 and the other in Numbers chapter 20. And in both occasions, God caused water to come out of a rock to quench the thirst. They didn't have any water. And in both cases, again, God showed His power over the elements of His creation in order to care for His people, providing for them as they travel through the wilderness. When Israel left Egypt, things that seemed like absolute barriers were removed by the power of God. Think about it. They were between the Red Sea and some mad Egyptians. God parted the the water. They were in a desert. There was no water. God brought water out of a rock twice. And then when it was finally time to go into the land, there was a river. God turned it back. The events of this psalm are not simply displays of God's raw power. They do do that. But they are there to remind us that God used that power for the sake of His people. I want to give you three thoughts to take home with you. First of all, I think it's important not only for the children of Israel who had experienced the Babylonian captivity, but it's important for you and me just to stop and remember God is all-powerful 
God is good and God is faithful. And this poem is shouting to me these three things about God. Stop and remember, mountains trembled in His presence. He is all-powerful. And God is good. God is faithful. After the Babylonian captivity, the children of Israel needed to stop and remember just what God had done and just who this God is. He's creator, sustainer, redeemer, provider, ruler over all creation. He's chosen to bring people into a relationship with Himself, including you, child of God, and He will maintain that relationship because you are now His responsibility. He had a plan for them and for His creation, and He will fulfill it. They needed to remember it, you need to remember it, and I need to remember it. Uh, This past week or so, when I was trying to get ready to speak this morning, I kind of go through ups and downs when these kinds of things happen. Hit some bumps in the road, and uh, it was kind of one of those bumps in the road. And then the thought popped into my mind, and I have to give the credit to the Lord on this. The The thought went through my mind, if God can bring water out of a rock, maybe He can squeeze a sermon out of me. Stop and remember who God is, where you are, whatever you're going through. Stop and remember. That's one of the reasons we have this table we celebrate where Jesus said, remember, remember what I've done. Another thought is this, that there is order in chaos. God is in control. Praise Him. Child of God, we can praise the Lord when we think things are absolutely, totally out of control. You know why? Because He's still in control. There were many, amen. I love that little amen back there. I think that's what that child said. That's the way I took it. It was either amen or oh me. There were many bumps in the roads for the children of Israel shortly after they came out of Egypt. Their history was not very long before they were between a Red Sea and some angry Egyptians. Their history was not very long before they were thirsty in a wilderness. And you could add other bumps in the road that the poet doesn't include in this short account. And then there, 40 years later, here we are again, a a river, and we're supposed to go over there. At times, it seems to us like things are completely out of control. But God was always in control. And He was always meeting their needs. I, I mentioned this the last time I spoke from a book of Psalms, but... It encourages me so much when I read it. I wanted to to mention it again. It's something that's written by a fellow who grew up in Graham, North Carolina. uh, Then went to uh, Franklin, Tennessee and started a church over there where a lot of the Nashville singers and musicians attended. And his name was Scotty Smith. And and I, I follow him on Twitter and he gives a lot of great little tweets 
that are really encouraging, and this was one of them. He said this was an evening note that he wrote to himself. And these were the words. He says, evening note to self. Nothing happened in the world today or in my life outside of God's commitment to His glory and my good. Now that's a mouthful. And that's something to think about. Nothing. He is still in control today. And He will cause all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. It may seem like things are out of control to you because you know what? They are out of your control. But they're not out of His control. So we can praise Him. Third thought I'd like for you to take home with you is that it is all pointing to Jesus. Worship Him. Trust Him and hope in Him alone. You know, the events in Psalm 114 are part of a bigger story. It's a short story, Psalm 114. But it's part of a bigger story that involves the whole Bible. God had promised that He was going to send a Messiah Savior through Abraham who would eventually crush the head of our enemy, the serpent, Satan. And we discover in scriptures that this Messiah Savior was going to come through Abraham. God told him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And in the fullness of time, this Messiah Savior came. And he came through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David. And the first verse in the New Testament says this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then Matthew begins with Abraham and traces the line to David. Then he picks up David and traces the line to the Babylonian captivity. Then he starts at the Babylonian captivity and traces the line up to King Jesus. He's here. All history... And all scripture is pointing to Jesus. And remember when Jesus was with Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember who else showed up that day? Moses and Elijah. And there's an interesting verse in Luke 9, 30 and 31 that says, Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. And you know what they, they were talking to Jesus about, they spoke of his exodus. That's the word. In our translation, it says they spoke of his departure. Literally, the word is they were speaking to Jesus about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Talking about Calvary. In 1 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is speaking about the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt. And he said this, they all drank from the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And just as creation trembled and obeyed in the presence of the Lord at the first exodus, 
creation trembled and obeyed in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and a big storm came? I don't know if it was big as Matthew or not, but it was a big storm and they can have big ones on the Sea of Galilee. The boat was being swamped by the waves. Jesus was asleep. The disciples woke him up. Lord, save us. We're perishing. Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid of you of little faith? Then he arose. And what did he do? He didn't rebuke his disciples. He rebuked the winds and the waves. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled and they said, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? On another occasion, the disciples were again in a boat. You ever heard the phrase, I'm I'm up the creek without a paddle? It seemed like the disciples were in that situation more than once. They're in a boat again. They're working painfully trying to move along, but the wind was against them. And between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the water. And the Sea of Galilee became a platform for Jesus to walk out and be with his disciples. There was another time they needed to pay a tax. And Jesus said, Peter, go down to the sea. And the fish that comes up, just take a coin out of his mouth. When the children of Israel were praising Jesus at his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, the religious leaders got all upset about it. And Jesus said, if they remain silent, the rocks will cry out. Then Jesus hung on a cross for you and me. And we read that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And after he yielded up his spirit on the cross, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And then we read these words. And the earth shook. And the rocks were split. His body was taken and placed in a tomb. A stone was put over the tomb. And then we read this about the first day of the week, three days later, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Pastor Tim Keller from up in New York said this about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the earth trembled and shook, indicating The coming of God's power to save. In order to get us to himself and to his kingdom that cannot be shaken, Jesus shook and destroyed death. And he will see to it that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate his children from his love. Listen to what Paul said. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Tremble, O earth, at his presence. Tremble, O earth, at what he has done. It's a word to you and me. Don't marginalize Jesus. Don't trivialize Jesus. Worship Jesus. Trust Jesus. And put all your hope in who he is and what he has done. All is pointing to Jesus. Aren't you glad that all is not pointing to either candidate that's running for president of the United States? It's not pointing to them or anybody else in the world. Either small or great. It's pointing to Jesus. Tremble and trust and rejoice in Him. We need Jesus Christ more than we need our next breath. She was a sinner and she's had a lot of bumps in her road. But she tasted that the Lord was good. And the Lord taught her some things about himself and about his love. And Fanny Crosby wrote some hymns about that. And I want us to sing one of her hymns as we close this morning. It's number 460. Some have said that... I read one source about this poem that Fanny Crosby wrote... And he said that she wrote it shortly after one of the bumps in the road in her life. And by the way, she had a, one kind of major bump. She was blind. But she had other bumps in the road like we do. And uh, she didn't have money to pay her rent. And she had prayed about it. And in, a, I would say, almost a miraculous way, somebody came to her door with the exact amount that she needed And so sometime afterward, thinking about how the Lord had supplied, and the Lord doesn't always make it that dramatic, but He did for her that day, she said, All the way my Savior leads me. Cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with the living bread. Though my weary steps may falter, and athirst my soul may be, Gushing from a rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. The Lord provides for His people. Amen. As Mark Massengill comes to lead us in prayer, may I just encourage you one more time to stop and remember, wherever you are, there is order in chaos because God is in control. And it's all pointing us to Jesus. Put your hope in Him and Him alone. Mark, come and lead us. Pray with me, please. Father, we're thankful that you are God of presence. You are present in the past. You are present today and will be present in the future. The events of our world, of our country, recently in our state, 
those devastated by Matthew, in our church body, in our families, and personally, none of that takes you by surprise. The young ladies of Hand of Hope, the situations they're in, you're aware of, both individually and their families. We lift them up to your care and guidance. We lift us up to your care and guidance that we may be a light for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.